0: My mother-in-law, Sharon, she said, you know, it's not like in the old days when people would just drop by and you'd always have a coffee pot on, you know, just kind of percolating and you'd have it on all day just in case someone stopped by, there was always coffee on. And the picture I got, and it's so different now because we're we're more in the mindset where drop, drop-ins, people dropping by, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> if they would just call first, you know? Cuz our lives are so busy. I mean, there's just the constant in, influx of information and everything going on. It's just so non-stop that the idea of a drop-by for a lot of people is just it's just an irritant. Whereas it didn't used to be so much. But the picture of of that coffee pot just sitting there percolating, waiting for someone to come by. And I was thinking about Jesus and how he's always got the coffee on for us. I'm not talking about the last legal drug, so to speak. I'm talking about just that, that waiting, welcoming fellowship. That at any given time in our life during the day whatever's going on Jesus is right there and the coffee's on and he's he's just waiting you could drop to a knee in the middle of work at lunch break in the lunch room you could you could pause wherever you are driving down the road pull over and you speak his name and he's right there ready to pour you a cup tonight he's Wanting to pour into our hearts, I know, because we have his word before us, and we're going to get into his word and and share that. But let's bow one more time, and I just want to thank him for his constant presence, his promise of always being with us. Lord Jesus, he says, surely I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. And we are so blessed that you are always here blessed by your faithfulness, your constancy, yesterday, today, and forever, you are the same. And Jesus, tonight we run to you, we come to you, and we, we hold out our cup, and we just ask, Jesus, will you pour of your spirit into our cup tonight? And would you fill us up and warm our hearts and our souls and our spirit with the truth of your word? Would you, Father, draw us out of the day, out of our stress, out of the difficulties of life, so that in this time we can simply sit down with you and share a cup of your spirit and have some of the bread of your word. We pray, give us this evening our daily bread. We hunger and we thirst after your righteousness, Lord, and we know in the hungering and the thirsting we will be satisfied. Jesus be our teacher tonight. And it's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 3. Tonight we backtrack a little from Sunday. We're doing a little skipping around we already studied the anointing of David as king over all of Israel and the taking of Zion, Jerusalem, as his capital. But you may recall from our study last Wednesday that David's rise to the throne was anything but easy. This was not a cakewalk. We're told and we'll see in chapter 5 that David was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned 40 years at Hebron and he reigned over Judah for 7 years and 6 months And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So for seven and a half years, David was trying to take the kingdom or or was waiting patiently. That is seven and a half years after the time he was crowned in Judah. Prior to that, you know, there was another ten years of his life where David was on the run from King Saul. He had been anointed by God and then he waited ten more years before, he was able to be enthroned in Judah and then another seven and a half, seventeen and a half years from the time God called him, anointed him to be king to the time when he finally took the throne over all Israel. 17 and a half years. So when you're praying for something and you're asking God to do something in your life, slow down. Moses spent 40 years in the desert. We see over and over, God's timetable is not as rapid fire as ours tends to be. It's also not as easy as we often would like it to be. It was seven and a half tough years. David's tribulation, if you could call it that. But in those days, we're told the house of David grew stronger and stronger. And tonight we'll see at the end of this struggle, David's final ascension to the throne. Where he'll reign over all of Israel for 33 years, the exact number of years that Jesus walked the face of the earth. The comparison between David and Jesus, there are so many and they're so rich and they're so full that we couldn't even do them all in one lesson. We've got a lot of other instances where we've taken a person in the Bible and we've said let's look at the comparison of of Joseph and Jesus or let's look at the comparison of Moses and Jesus or even someone like Samson and Jesus and how these other people in the Old Testament remind us of Jesus. Well, David is so much like Jesus in so many ways. There are so many facets of his life that are similar to the Lord that it would take study after study after study to get there. So I'm going to leave that to you. We're going to start now in chapter 3, verse 6, picking up right where we left off. That it came about, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. You may recall from last week, after Saul's death, along with three of his four sons, that a man named Ishbosheth, Ishbosheth is a fourth son of Saul, he was made the puppet king over Israel while David was king over Judah. But the real power behind the throne in Israel for these couple of years here, the real power, was Abner. Abner is the strength. Abner is commander of Saul's forces. Abner is a good guy. Abner is an honorable man. He is a hero in Israel. There's an accidental death that we read about last time when he was being chased by one of Joab's brothers, Asahel, and Asahel was getting close and Abner was calling back, Is that you, Asahel? And he was saying, Yeah, it's me, and I'm going to get you. And Abner's going, Please, back off, take a younger guy. You're not going to be able to take me. And Asahel wouldn't let up and so Abner jabs with his spear backwards, the butt end of his spear. But apparently in the running, I don't know if Asahel had tripped it, if Abner stopped too quickly, but the spear, the blunt end, the butt end of the spear went right through Asahel's body and killed him. But I truly believe in the reading of the text and the understanding of what's going on and even what's, some of what we'll see tonight. Abner did not intend to kill him. He wanted to stop him. Poke him. Get him to back off. So even that was accidental. But Abner, Abner is a loyal man. He is fighting for the house of Saul because he believes in the house of Saul. And he's not yet sure if he can believe in this guy, David. So that's Abner. A little bit of background on him. Verse 7 going on says, Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, a daughter of Aiah, and Ishbosheth." said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? And Abner was very angry over the words of ish and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show kindness to the house of Saul your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hands of David. And yet today you charge me with guilt concerning the woman? What's going on here? Well, in fact, after all those nice things I said about Abner, he did in fact go in and take Saul's concubine as his own. I don't know if he fell in love with her, if he just wanted her for himself, or more likely there was probably a political move going on here. Because in this day, at this time, the taking of another man's concubine, and you may recall a concubine is not a wife, she's less than a wife, she doesn't have quite all the rights and privileges of a wife in a house. The whole idea of the Middle Eastern harem includes this idea of concubines. So this is a less than wife, but Abner saw this less than wife of Saul. Saul is dead now, so she's there, and he takes her for himself. And when someone did that in the Middle East in these times, it was a challenge. It was saying, I now am taking on the control and the authority of this man. Saul's concubine is my concubine, and I have the authority that Saul used to have. We'll see this happen again in 2 Samuel chapter 16. When we get there, David has a trusted advisor, a man named Ahithophel, who turns against him and advises David's rebellious son Absalom to go into his father's concubine and take her for himself. And Absalom will do this in front of all Israel. And the whole point is, he's taking David's concubine to himself and he's saying to Israel, I am taking control from my father's kingdom. I am usurping control. I am the one in authority now. Well, Abner is moving politically to take one of Saul's concubines, Rispa. By the way, it's interesting, Rispa's name means pavement. (laughs) And basically she's walked all over. The name is perfect for her. Pavement. I'm going to pick up some pavement here for me, says Abner. And he takes her. I, I saw the meaning of her name, pavement, and I thought to myself, you know, if I were a woman, ladies, aren't you glad that you live in the day of Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad that you are at a time in our world's history where we can see God's true intention for women and for men where Jesus came on the scene 2,000 years ago and said women are not pavement and he elevated women right back to where they should be alongside man, helping man, walking with man, man and woman together in the garden that's the way it was with Adam and Eve It wasn't Lord over lady. It was Lord and lady walking together in the garden. Jesus did that. Galatians 3.28 tells us there's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. Well, then how come all the marital strife, and the man being the boss and all the... How come this concubine stuff in the Bible? Because of the curse. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 3 and reread the curse, you see very clearly, before the curse, it was not this way. Eve and Adam were created together before the Father. It was after the curse that God said to Eve, hey, because you bit into the apple first, guess what? Your desire is now going to be for your husband, and he's going to lord it over you. He's going to reign over you. And that curse remained in effect all the way until Jesus died on the cross and Paul is able to now say there's neither male nor female, all are one, where? In Christ Jesus. In Jesus, Rizpah goes away. In Jesus, women are no longer pavement you want to see the most elevating place in the world for a woman it is not to join up with a women's lib organization it's to join up with Jesus Christ he elevates women to where they belong to their rightful place the Bible is not endorsing here women as pavement the Bible is telling us what happened the Bible is just being clear about history It's not pulling punches. It's not cleaning it up for us. The Lord is just saying, this is exactly what was going on. Abner took Rizpah for himself. It's the sinful truth of the state of humanity. Husbands, we are given an entirely different model in Christ Jesus. And I want you to listen to this model. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Well, that's easy. I can love her. Love you, hon. Grab a coat for me, will you? love you hun thanks for doing the laundry I'll just be here watching the game love you hun you need money you know have you ever heard that about the wife who went to her husband who was really stingy and she said she said honey I need 50 bucks and he said 40 bucks what do you want 20 bucks for (laughs) (laughs) husband love your wife just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her Sometimes men like to point to Ephesians 5 and say, Wives, submit to your husbands, see? I can't think of a more dramatic act of submission than to give your life for somebody. And that's how a husband is supposed to love his wife. Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, Paul writes. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one... He's never hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. He says, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is also to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband, because you see, that's that's what us guys kind of need. Ladies, let me just share that with you. If you don't understand your dumb husband, or your smart one, whichever the case may be, we need respect. That that does so much for me when Cheryl just respects, shows respect and, and honor to me. It really encourages me in our marriage. And I think it's interesting that Paul says husbands love your wives. Give her the emotional feeling that she needs. Give her that, that love. Wives, respect your husbands because it helps. They feel dumb enough on their own. <laughs> they don't need you telling them. Respect your husband. Peter said in 1 Peter three seven, you husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way. Now listen, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman. Now of course someone could completely take offense to that. <laughs> weaker? Are you kidding? And if you've seen Cheryl in Taekwondo lately, it's changing things around the house. A bit. I keep saying I will not misuse Taekwondo. <laughs> Live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. So husbands, if you're lording it over your women, your wives, it's hindering your prayer life. You want to grow closer to the Lord? You want to be a stronger man of God? Love your wife more. And it will deepen your prayer life. Well, in Second Samuel chapter 3... Back to verse eight. Now we we see Abner doing this. This was a sign of the times. This was a cultural thing. Taking the concubine, Abner is very angry about this. He yells at Ishbosheth, and he's angry and rightly so because he has given Ishbosheth everything. He's put Ishbosheth on the throne in the house of Saul. He is the power behind it, but he's giving Ishbosheth the place of honor. He said, "How dare you come at me like this?" And it ticks him off, and he's beginning to see a little bit of who this Ishbosheth is. Abner's had it. Verse 9, picking it up there. May God do so to Abner, and more also, if as the Lord has sworn to David, I do not accomplish this for him. And Abner speaking, he said, I'm going to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul, and to establish it, the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan even to Beersheba, and he could no longer answer Abner a word because he was afraid of him. Is his first Chef? is probably... Likely a coward By his own admission we know Abner truly knew all along who was supposed to be king Because in this verse Abner quotes what the Lord said about David Abner knew David was supposed to be king But he was loyal to the house of Saul Yet he knew God's promise was to David He's in a tough spot Loyal to Saul God's promise is to David Loyal to Saul Here's God's promise Which way do I go? King Abner in his in his loyalty, which is a good thing, is fighting against the will of God, which is a bad thing. Kind of like Paul, the apostle. When he was called Saul, Acts 26.14, he's on the Damascus Road and he's recounting this again, his conversion experience, and he makes this statement. He said, when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice behind me saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. That's a great phrase, kicking against the goads. Goads are cattle prods. And the Lord was saying to Paul, who was Saul at the time, it's it's hard for you to kick against the cattle prods. Imagine a cow trying to be herded into the pen, and as that cattle prod's trying to herd him in, he's kicking and thrashing. That's Saul, who would be Paul. The Lord has the cattle prod, and he's trying to get him. Come on, come on, Saul, he's in other words for a lot longer than we realize the apostle Paul while he was Saul was being drawn to Jesus though he was persecuting him he was loyal to his faith loyal to the Judaism he had been raised with loyal to his own people and he couldn't imagine going against him very similar to Abner but he knew Saul knew in his mind that Jesus was drawing him but he was kicking against the drawing have you ever done that? Do you do that in your life? It is hard to do. It gets even harder when you give your life to Jesus. And I've noticed this. Jesus is determined once you have given yourself to Him. He's determined to guide you. Even if it means sticking it to you temporarily, but gently, forcefully but lovingly, Jesus wants to guide you. I say oh Jesus I love you But then I start to go after my own will Or I start to be loyal to my own interests And out comes the cattle prod And he lovingly but forcefully begins to direct me He may start to turn the screws in an area of my life And it gets painful or difficult And, I, and the more I try to go this direction And the Lord wants me to go that direction The more painful it is And I'm kicking against the goats I know that David's supposed to be king But I'm loyal to the house of Rick. (laughs) And Jesus is saying this way, son, this way. Hebrews 12.5 My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Thank thank God he cares enough to discipline us, to goad us on. So when your life is getting tough, maybe instead of saying, Lord, lighten up on me, maybe you ought to pause and say, Lord, what are you trying to say here? Where are you leading me? Am I just confused? Am I just heading down a different road than the one you've called me to? Verse 12 Abner sent messengers to David now in his place saying, Whose is the land? Make your covenant with me and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel over to you. Abner Commander of the house of Saul Now determines to side with David This honorable man realizes Finally who's right He's seen the wimpiness and the weakness And the shame of Ishbosheth long enough So now he's going to turn And he's going to support David And accept his authority Abner has an interesting meaning The name Abner Abner is the son of Ner Which is, you know, makes sense Abner But Abner means literally My father is a lamp My father is a lamp I read that and immediately thought of Psalm eighteen twenty eight. You light my lamp. The Lord my God illumines my darkness. Psalm one nineteen, one oh five, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And indeed the Lord begins to illuminate Abner's path. Abner begins to see who this guy is that he's serving, and to see the correct direction. Again, he's not bad, he's just loyal. But as he gains strength in the house of Saul, the Lord sheds clear light on his path. What do you do when the Lord illuminates your path? That can be an easy question or a tough one. Because the Lord will either use the cattle prod or sometimes will just shed light on the situation. He'll let me walk far enough down the road and then he'll turn the light on and I'll look around and go, I don't like where I am. What do I do with that? Do I turn and go the direction of the Lord or do I continue to kick against Him? Well, Abner... Abner turns and now he's going to support David. Verse 13. David said, Good, I will make a covenant with you, but I demand one thing of you, namely you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see me. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, to whom I was betrothed for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Kind of a little pre-wedding gift. <laughs> you remember Michael. Saul gave her to David He said whoever kills the Philistines I guess, Gets my daughter And so David goes out Kills a hundred of them Gets their foreskins, Brings them to Saul And as a gift He gets Saul's daughter Michael Who truly was a handful I think Saul probably knew that Back when he gave her to David Which is why he did it David doesn't need another wife Does he? I mean he's pretty much Got a handful as it is we counted how many six six at the beginning of chapter three. So add Michael the bad is seven, Bathsheba's gonna be eight, and there's any number of other wives that we don't ever know their names, that David is going to draw to himself, wives and concubines. What is David doing? Probably more than anything else, it's another one of these political moves. He is attempting to consolidate his base. He's going into South Carolina and he's got to get his base rallying around him and so he's getting Michael and he's thinking you know if I draw her back to myself as, if, if she's my wife daughter of Saul what's that going to say to Israel? I'm marrying in I'm trying to get this back under control we're, we're, we're one people here and I think it was more of a political move than anything else but the, the story, story here gets kind of pathetic ish verse 15 sent and took her from her husband from Paltiel the son of Laish Paltiel so Saul gave Michael to Paltiel but her husband went with her weeping as he went and followed her as far as Bahurim and then Amr said to him go return so he returned get the picture here the king now, David, is calling for his wife back. Paul Teal, the husband of the wife, says, no, I don't need my wife, and he's following, he's weeping, he's take Michael away from me, and Michael's being drawn, and and they get all the way down to this Kabaharim and Abner comes in and goes, "Go home, dude." Oh, okay. Wimp. <laughs> Fight for your woman. I mean, stand up for her. Don't just give up. Paul Teal's name means God delivers. But apparently Paulfield didn't believe that or didn't think about that. Rather than standing up and being a man and saying, Hey, this is my wife, he whines and he winces and he weeps all along behind him until Abraham says, Take a hike. And then he turns and leaves. There's far too many Far too many men in Christianity who are wimps, even when they know God delivers. So, men, as you love your wives, would you stand strong in the Lord for your wives? And you guys who aren't married, man, when you are, stand strong in the Lord for your wife. Be strong. Be God's man. Verse 17. Now Abner had a consultation with the elders of Israel, saying, In the times past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then do it, for the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. See, Abner does know what God has been saying. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin, and in addition Abner went to speak in the hearing of David and Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and to the whole house of Benjamin. And then Abner and twenty men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Abner, verse 21, said to David, Let me arise and go gather all Israel to my Lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may be king over all that your soul desires. And so David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Finally, the civil war is over. It's ended now. This is great news. David's going to have his kingdom. The Civil War has ended. President Lincoln, you can go see a play tonight. There's just one hitch, and his name is Joab. Remember Sunday I mentioned that Joab was kind of a brute, kind of a bullish thug. And here's part of the reason why. Verse 22, Behold, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid. And they brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him arrived, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king. Then he sent him away, and he's gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? behold Abner came to you why then have you sent him away and he's already gone you know Abner son of Ner that he came to deceive you and to learn of your going out and your coming in and to find out all that you are doing Abner had bitterness and vengeance stored up in his heart against Joab or sorry other way around reverse that Joab was bitter toward Abner because remember Abner had killed Joab's brother Asahel and Joab had not forgotten it And Joab wanted him dead. So there's a blood feud. And this is where Joab's heart is. Verse 26 it says, When Joab came out from David, he sent messengers after Abner. And they brought him back from the well of Sirah, but David did not know it. So when, and watch this, when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the middle of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the belly so that he died on account of the blood of Asahel, his brother. By the way, if you read it in the King James Version, it says he struck him under the fifth rib. If you go back and look at how Asahel died, the butt of Abner's spear went in under the fifth rib. kind of the point here is Joab is getting Abner exactly the way Abner got his brother I'm paying you back in full for what you did to my brother Asahel it says afterward when David heard of it verse 28 he said I am my kingdom are innocent before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner the son of Ner may it fall on the head of Joab and all his father's house and may there not fail from the house of Joab one who has a discharge that is running sores or Who's a leper? Or who takes hold of a distaff, in other words, someone who's crippled. Or one who falls by the sword or lacks bread. What's David saying? He's saying, I curse the house of Joab. I hope, Joab, you and your kids forevermore have running sores and you're crippled and you're lepers and you fall by the sword and you lack bread. It's a colorful, poetic man, David is. And he's painting this picture and saying, that's what you deserve, Joab, for what you've done. Verse 30, So Joab and Abishai's brother killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gabeon. And Joab is taking matters into his own hands and in so doing, he's making a mess for the king. He's not really even thinking about what David might be attempting for Israel. He's thinking about himself. And he's making a mess for the king. And we do the same thing when we don't entrust the kingdom to the one to whom it actually belongs. When we fight for the kingdom, so-called, but it's really what we want, we make a mess of things instead of finding out what is it that the Lord truly wants. Jesus prayed in Matthew 6.10, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when we write with our own agenda, when we walk and do things in our own power and our own strength and and the way we want them done, instead of inquiring from the Lord, we can end up making a mess just as Joab did. Good news. You may recall from Sunday something positive about Joab. He makes a mess of things here. He really does. In fact, if David doesn't handle it the way you're going to see he does, if he hadn't handled it well... Joab's murder of Abner Could have split the kingdom Right there for good Thank goodness David Was in the place that he was in But what should David do with Joab The guy who comes in here And just makes a mess of things And just put him out of his misery He's stupid anyway Let's just get rid of him Get him out from the king's council We don't need him right Well you may recall From Sunday in chapter 5 That Joab is going to be The first one to get into Jerusalem And because of that David's going to put him in command Which shows an incredible graciousness on the part of David. And it reminds us of a God who will use whoever will go in spite of their past. In spite of the dumb things that we do. And so as I said on Sunday, I say again to you tonight... If you labor over your past behavior or past sins or past life and think that's going to make it very difficult for me to walk in the light and to to share Jesus with people now, God has forgotten the past. He is looking for who will go up the water tunnel. Who will go in and take the stronghold? Forget the past. Jesus died for that. Go forward. God will use whoever will go in spite of their past. I love this Passage, First Corinthians one twenty six where Paul says, Consider your calling, brethren, that not many were wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. In other words, you weren't smart, you weren't strong, you weren't even noble. You were just kind of, think about where you came from. He says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Which still amazes me. Joe, doesn't that amaze you? That God knows about everything I've ever done. He knows about all my stupid kingdom messing up, Joab type mistakes. But he still says, Rick, if you'll go, if you'll take the stronghold. I'll put you in charge of parts of my kingdom. I'll use you. And I'll forget about what happened before. That's what David does. He writes the situation by doing the right thing. Look at verse 31. David then said to Joab and to all the people who are with him, Tear your clothes and gird on sackcloth and lament before Abner. And King David was walking behind the buyer. They had a massive funeral for Abner here. And thus they buried Abner in Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people went. And the king chanted a lament for Abner. Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put in fetters. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Why does David say this? Should Abner die as a fool dies? I mean, in essence, he's saying, Abner died like a fool. This was a foolish death. Well, part of what he may be saying is that Joab was a fool for killing him. And so it was a fool's murder. And he may have been speaking to Abner as well. Abner did something here. He died as a fool. He should have died with dignity and honor and valor on the field of battle Because that's the kind of guy Abner was But he died a fool's death well, what do you mean? Well, what did he do that was foolish? Think about this Abner killed Asahel But it was an unintentional killing It was in self-defense He's running away He jabs the spear backwards And accidentally kills Asahel It's manslaughter What did the Bible say about manslaughter? You Bible students, you've got to draw back and think about this. There was a provision for those who committed manslaughter in the law. If they were, at least until guilt or innocence could be proven, God designated six cities throughout Israel called the cities of refuge. And if the person who committed manslaughter went to one of those cities of refuge, he could hide out there, stay there. And he would be protected and safe until either he was proven innocent or he could stay there until the high priest died. And there, by the way, is an amazing allusion to Jesus, our high priest, dying and being our refuge. But in this, Numbers 35 says that there are six of these cities that would be set up when the children of Israel came into Israel, came into the land. Six cities that they would set up throughout the land to reach. Three on one side of the Jordan, three on the other. Joshua chapter 20, verse 7 says they set apart Kadesh in the Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba in the hill country of Judah. Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Hebron. Where did uh, Joab strike Abner? Verse 27. He returned to Hebron, and Joab took him aside into the middle of the gate, literally just outside the gate. Had Abner stayed inside of Hebron, he would have been protected in the city of refuge. But he did a foolish thing. He trusted his enemy, Joab, and he stepped outside of the gate. He stepped out from under the covering of the city of refuge, and Joab killed him. It was foolish. Had he stayed inside, he would have been protected by law in the city of refuge. And as we sang tonight, Jesus, Jesus is our refuge and we are foolish when we step out from under his protection when we leave the city that is Jesus when we leave our refuge when we say Jesus i'm going to you know i'm going to do this thing i'm going to do my own thing just for today I, I, I know this is not something that would please you so why don't you stay here and i'm going to go do this myself and we step out from under covering oh it's not that jesus won't forgive because he is faithful to forgive but we step out from under protection and the enemy is just waiting to get us just outside the gate and to stick it to us. Don't be, lured into places where you will fall as a fool. You stay in the city of refuge, which is Jesus Christ. Matthew 6.13, Jesus said, Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Matthew 26.41, Jesus said, Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And Jesus would say to you and me tonight, Don't forget that. The flesh is weak. And because the flesh is weak, if you step out from under covering, you are in a dangerous spot, and the enemy will stick it to you. Don't leave your covering who is Jesus. And say we'll follow Him up that hill. Follow him. Stay with him. Don't turn aside to do what you think you want to do that you know would be displeasing to the Lord. How do we remain in our city of refuge? How do we remain under that covering? What, what do we do? Prayer. Constant prayer. Watchfulness. Fellowship with other believers, other Christians. We need each other. We need the church. The word, as you're doing tonight. Man, the more I am in the Word, the more easy it is to stay in that place of safety and protection and covering that the Lord provides. Worship. Man, worship like nothing else draws me out of myself, keeping my eyes fixed on the Lord. And these things He calls us to. They recall our covering, our refuge who is Jesus Christ. Verse 35. Continuing on, verse 35 tells us, then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread. Watch what he does. While it was still David, David bowed, saying, May God do so to me. And more so also, if I taste bread or anything else before the sun goes down. All the people took note of it, and it pleased them. Or at least it was good in their eyes, just as everything the king did pleased all the people, or was literally good in their eyes. So all people And all Israel understood that day That it had not been the will of the king To put Abner the son of Ner to death And then the king said to his servants Do you not know That a prince and a great man Has fallen this day in Israel I am weak today Though anointed king And these men The sons of Zeruiah That is Joab and and Abishai They are too difficult for me May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil. <laughs> I, I've had that thought. And this guy is driving me nuts. He's too difficult for me. I cannot handle dealing with this person. I cannot handle this situation. Lord, this is too difficult for me. And I love the heart of David who says, May the Lord repay. God, I've I got to hand this over to you. I can't deal. It's too much for my heart. It's too much for me to handle. May the Lord May the Lord with pay. What do the people see here that pleases them so much about David? They see compassion. And they see mercy. And they see love and honor. I think more than anything else though, they see in David this idea of compassion to the point of sorrow. He really is anguished over the death of Abner. He proves to the people by his behavior, and this is not political, this is David's heart. He proves by his very behavior that he loved Abner, that he considered Abner a great man, that he cared about this man. And as they saw David's sorrow, they said, this is someone who really does care. He cares about us. And I can follow his lead. Now as David mourned Abner's death, the people saw all of this, and it brings up kind of an old adage, and maybe you've heard this before, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You see, you can tell someone all you want about memorized Bible passages and scriptures and you can really point out their need to be saved but until they know that you truly care about them they're not going to listen. Which is why the best evangelism that happens happens in the context of a loving relationship. A friendship that is not based on whether or not I can get you to come to church with me but a friendship that is based on the fact that I love you. That I just care about you. That I'm telling you about Jesus. Because where I know I'm going, I want you to be there. And I know your life is hard. And I and I care. And I, and I am there for you. We show people that. And when they understand how much you care, just like the people of Israel, when they understood how much David cared, they're like, okay, I can follow him. Alright, he's proven himself worthy to be king. He obviously is a man of compassion. This is so true in ministry especially. most, Many of you here on Wednesday nights, and you're coming in here midweek, you're, you're at a place in your Christian walk where you're desiring to serve and, and you want to be involved in the ministry of the fellowship and of church. But if you do service, and hear me on this, if you do any ministry out of compulsion or in frustration or out of guilt, people will know it. And they're not going to want to jump on board that ministry. But, if you serve from a place of love, people will embrace your leading if you show that you just simply care about the people that you're serving with, they'll want to follow. I have no problem following a person that I know loves me and cares about me. And so we're called to this. By the way, it also reminds me of the son of David. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 53, verse 3, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Whose grief? Mine. Yours. Yours. The word says, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. This hit me like a ton of bricks this week. For the first time in my life, and maybe this is simple, maybe you've known this for years, I just got this. When Jesus is called the man of sorrows, the sorrows being talked about there are not His own. They're mine. He is the man of sorrows, my sorrows, your sorrows, our heartaches, our difficulties, our struggles, our pain. That's His. The man of sorrows, not because he had such a horrible time in life, but because he loved so richly and so deeply that every single person he looked at, he knew their sin, he knew their pain, and he knew his death had to pay for that. So when you hear this phrase again in the future, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, would you please know that the grief he was acquainted with is yours. It's your grief. Go on to chapter 4. Verse 1. Now when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage and all Israel was disturbed. Saul's son had two men who were commanders of bands. The name of one was Baana and the name of the other was Rechab, sons of Ramon the, Be- the Be'erothite, the sons of Benjamin for Be'eroth is also considered part of Benjamin, and the Be'erothites fled to Gitaim, and have been aliens there until this day. Now, Jonathan, and by the way, verse 4 is kind of an aside. This just kind of gets stuck in here, but we'll read it. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was crippled in his feet. And he was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth's story is a wonderful one, but we'll get to it at another time. Verse 5. So the sons of Ramon the Beerothite, Rechab and Baana, they departed, and they came to the house of Ishbosheth in the heat of the day while he was taking his midday rest. They came into the middle of the house as if to get wheat, and they struck him in the belly. King James Version translates under the fifth rib. Same place again. They struck him in the belly, and Rahab and Baana, his brother, escaped. Now, when they came into the house, as he was lying on the bed in his bedroom, they struck him, and they killed him, and they beheaded him. They just wanted, I guess, make sure they had done the full job. And they took his head and traveled by way of the Araba all night. You ever traveled with someone's head through the desert all night long? This is something we were talking about another an earlier. And I forget the exact story, but a week or two ago about another beheading and how they carried the head around with them. And Cheryl was saying, "We just that is just so gross. can you imagine just the odor? I mean, here here are these two guys, you know, Beana and Rakab, and they're they're sitting around the campfire, you know, roasting marshmallows." Talking to Ishbosheth, how you doing, man? <laughs> His little head just there. I mean, it's just it's so graphic, but it's true. This is exactly what happened. They take this head and they travel all night long. <laughs> Verse eight. Then they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and they said to the king, "Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul." Your enemy who sought your life. Thus the Lord has given my lord the king vengeance this day on Saul and his descendants. Right? Wrong. These guys didn't know much about David's character, did they? Verse 9. David answered Rechab and Baan and his brother, sons of Ramon the Beerothite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, when one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I not require his blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? Then David commanded the young men, and they killed them, and they cut off their hands and feet and hung them up beside the pool in Hebron. Which I think probably would have cut down on the community swimming for that week. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the grave of Abner in Hebron. Now David says something here that we see again and again in David's life. And it is kind of a theme that runs through our whole entire study tonight. Listen to this. He says, I don't need man to defend my cause. Listen to the phrase again. I've got this highlighted in my Bible. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress. In other words, God is my Redeemer. And I don't need you to be my Redeemer. I don't need you guys to try and stand in and make it right. I didn't need Joab to go there and and, and kill Abner for me. I don't need other people to defend me. God is my Redeemer. God is my Defender. He does just fine and doesn't need anyone else's help. This is where David's heart is. This got him through the entire time Saul was chasing him. David kept going God is my rock God is my rock He's my shield He's my fortress He's my stronghold He's my deliverer I will trust God I'm not going to fight back I'm not going to kill Saul Remember he had two chances to do it He wouldn't do it I'm not going to kill Abner Even though Joab does I'm not going to go after Ishbosheth And try to kill him To usurp that throne This is God's call on my life And he will defend me And he will protect me And I will trust him And over and over This is where David's heart is and it is a great place to live your life especially when you feel like you're under attack you can just say well my name may be may be splattered out in the community people may look at me and go I heard about what you did and by the way people have said to me Pastor Rick I heard about what you did and I had to say I'm the Lord's my defender I had several times in my life where I had to pray Lord I need you to defend the truth I need you to be right because I can't go up head to head with this and God has always been the perfect shield hold that thought we're going to come back to it in a minute Chapter 5 going on We're going to finish up tonight Then all the tribes of Israel Came to David at Hebron. And they said Behold We are your bone and your flesh Previously when Saul was king over us You were the one who led Israel out and in And the Lord said to you You will shepherd my people Israel And you will be a mighty You will be a ruler over Israel I I love that David you're going to shepherd Israel Because he was a shepherd when he was a kid It's a perfect training ground for David to be king and so all the elders of Israel, they came to, to, to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron, and they anointed King da- uh, David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah in seven, uh, seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all of Israel and Judah. Now, we read this story Sunday, just, just to review. The king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, and they said to David, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame, they will turn you away, thinking David cannot enter here. Remember the alarm system of the Jebusites? Missed that on Sunday? They had the blind men up on the wall because they could hear more clearly in the night. And if someone was coming, they wouldn't be to see. Their eyes wouldn't be, you see something? I don't know. I, I,. No, they couldn't see anything. They could just listen. So they would hear someone coming, And they'd say, someone's coming. And the lame men would try to run, but obviously they couldn't. And so the lame guys would go, okay, help, someone get us out of here. The alarm would sound and they would know that trouble was on the way. It's a pretty ingenious system. And this is what the Jebusites were meaning. And they're also taunting David and his men. Nevertheless, verse 7, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David, that is, by the way, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul through the water tunnel. Therefore, they say, the blind or the lame shall not come into the house. And so David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the Melo and inward. David became greater and greater for the Lord God of hosts. Was with him. Now, David continues to rise in his greatness. And verse 11 going on says, Then Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messages to David with cedar trees and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a house for David. Pretty cool. And David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. Meanwhile, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron and more sons and daughters were born to David so he enters into this time of relative peace and rest and it's time to start messing around it tells us in verse 14 now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem Shamuah, Shobab Nathan Solomon Ibhar Elishua Nepheg, Japhia Elishama, Eliada, Eliphelet now A couple of things to to point out real quick about the mention of David continuing his multiplication of wives and concubines here. Yes, there was sin involved. Again, the Bible is acknowledging what was. It's not putting the stamp of approval and saying, hey, because David had many wives, it must be okay. It's just saying this is what happened. Now, why did it happen? Partially because this was a culturally appropriate and relevant thing to do in the Middle East of this time as we talked about the concubine Rizpah the, the pavement you know as, as Abner took him for himself to kind of show power and authority so when someone ascended to power in the Middle East a picture of that ascension to power a picture of rule and authority along with that came women pavement <laughs> And a king would surround himself with many women, a harem, many concubines, many wives, because it it expressed to the people and to the culture, it expressed lordliness and rule. And David was, unfortunately, completely culturally relevant. He was in step with his times. So much for cultural relevance. (laughs) I mean it's a great example of the the point and the fact and, and in the church we need to understand this that being culturally relevant is not always the best move it's not always what we have been called to sometimes we are completely culturally irrelevant people look at us and say why would you live like that we've got this and that and we've got, we got wives and concubines and all kinds of fun that you could be having and I say no my one wife is just fine because that's what the Lord has called me to and, and the culture would just go that's weird well you're not you're not keeping up with the times man David kept up with the times he made a mess of things as his life continues on it is a tragic mess his family is a mess but there's something else to notice here that's fascinating the children listed here now I don't know a whole lot about Shamur or Shobab or Ibhar or Lishua or Nafag or Japhia or Elishama or Eliad or Eliphelet or Elefante. I don't know who. I mean all kinds of interesting names here but I do know about Nathan and Solomon and Nathan and Solomon are mentioned here why? because these two boys would be the connection to the bloodline of Jesus Christ these two sons of David are the two lines through which ultimately it would come back around to Jesus and I want to point this out to you it's very cool Solomon who is the son the second son actually of David and Bathsheba the first son of David and Bathsheba will die second son of David and Bathsheba Solomon is going to be king And his line leads directly to Joseph. And then legally speaking, though not physically speaking, legally speaking, to to Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 takes you all the way through the line of David and takes you down to Joseph, who Matthew very cleverly writes was supposed to be, or thought to be, the father of Jesus. Of course, you and I know that he wasn't. But the legal line all the way back to David goes through Solomon to Joseph however this other son Nathan if you track that legal line from David to his son Nathan and on down the line it ends up with a woman named Mary who is the blood mother of Jesus Luke chapter 3 tells us why two genealogies people look at the Bible and critics would say they're, they're not even exact they don't even match up exactly right well exactly because one goes through Solomon and the other one goes through Nathan they're two different bloodlines but they both draw back to David and then through David all the way back to Abraham and then back to Noah and Adam and all the way like that but in Joseph's line we see the legal line back to the throne of David Old Testament students though you need to realize this and remember the line from Solomon would end up getting a curse on it It's called the curse of Coniah. Let me read this to you. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 24. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Coniah, and by the way, Coniah is Jeconiah, but God, when he refers to him, takes the J-E off because the J-E would reference Jehovah. So he takes it out of Jeconiah's name and just calls him Coniah because Jeconiah has nothing to do with God. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Caniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. Jeremiah 22.30 Thus says the Lord Write this man down childless A man who will not prosper in his days For no man of his descendants will prosper Sitting on the throne of David Or ruling again in Judah And in that moment The line of Solomon is cut off From the eternal throne of David Any son that Caniah would have and any offspring or descendants would never, according to the Lord's curse, ever be able to sit on David's throne. And that line lands us at Joseph. Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, would not have the right, if he were to try to ascend to the throne, he would be cursed by God. You cannot ever sit on the throne of David. But God provided another line. Nathan's line, which effectively bypasses the curse of Keniah and legitimately continues the royal bloodline of David through his son Nathan to Jesus as David's legitimate heir. So you can trace Jesus back either way. But God always has a fail-safe. God always provides perfectly that his plan will be accomplished. Now listen, this final story here, I believe, reveals kind of the sum of everything that we have seen here tonight. There's a prevailing message in all these stories. In chapter 3, through David's patience, Abner comes around and finally sees him as Israel's rightful king. Also in chapter 3, we see on the other hand, Joab, this impatient guy, takes matters into his own hands, kills Abner and makes a mess for the king. And in chapter 4, we saw how Rechab and Baanna take matters into their own hands, killing ish thinking they're going to please David and they do nothing of the sort. And now in chapter 5 We see all the people of Israel Even David's enemies Even his enemies They recognize what David has known all along And that's this The Lord is with me God is my defender He will be my shield Verse 17 When the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel All the Philistines went up to seek out David Now they're ticked off Because remember They at this point probably still wondered if David was on their side He lived down in Ziklag. He almost went to war with him. So what's David playing at here? They weren't sure until now. Now that he's been made king over the whole land. So they go up to fight with him. And when David heard of it, he went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines came and they spread themselves out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, as David always does, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up. I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. So David, he came to Baal-Perezim, and he defeated them there, and he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like the breakthrough of waters. Therefore, he named that place Baal-Perezim. And they abandoned their idols there, so David and his men carried them away. By the way, contrast that. Verse 21 the Philistines abandoned their idols and David and his men carried them away. Contrast that with 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 11. What happens there? The Philistines conquer Israel. Israel runs away and they take the Ark of the Covenant. So now the opposite is happening. Israel defeats the Philistines and takes their idols, their guys, and they take all this stuff away. Verse 22, Now the Philistines came up once again and spread themselves out in the Valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord. Again, he said, You shall not go directly up. The Lord is now speaking to David. Circle around behind them and come at them in front of the balsam trees. It shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then you shall act promptly. For then the Lord will strike. The Lord will have gone out before you to strike the army of the Philistines. Verse 25, Then David did so, just as the Lord had commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba as far as Getzer. And by the way, that's a distance of about 15 miles where they just waylaid the Philistines. This is the great message that we see in this, at least in this period of David's life. David never defends himself. He never defends himself. Though there are plenty of opportunities and plenty of times when I read David's life and I go, David, say something. Stand up. Don't just back off and and, and pray here. I I know that's important too. I'm a Christian. I believe in prayer. But I really want you to stand up and say, knock it off. I'm king. And he will not do it. Baal Perazim. It tells us, David named this place, Baal Perazim. And it's not because of the god Baal. The name Baal has a couple of meanings to it. One, it was a pagan god. It was a name given to a pagan god. But literally, literally translated, Baal just means master. And David takes that name, that that designation, Baal Perazim, and it means master of the breakthrough, master of the breakthrough. Which is why David came to Baal-Perezim, verse 20, and said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like the breakthrough of waters. God is the master of the breakthrough. When I don't need to defend myself, if I just lay it before the Lord and stand back and trust Him, guess what? He goes before me and He is the master of the breakthrough. He busts through walls I can't possibly climb I can't even go around But God is the master of the breakthrough There's only one other use for this phrase In all of scripture It's Isaiah 28 verse 21 That tells us The Lord will rise up As at Mount Perazim. Back when he broke through for David The Lord will rise up He will be stirred up as in the Valley of Gabion to do his task, his unusual task, and to work his work, his extraordinary work. He is the master of the breakthrough. And I tell you all this, and I I see this as the overarching theme for us tonight because I believe the Lord wants us to understand that we waste so much energy and so much time and so much of our emotional and physical resource defending things when God would say I can be your shield do you trust me? I will be your defender will you hand it to me? I'll be your stronghold will you stay with me? I'll be your refuge will you hide in me? you can go out and and fight the battles yourself you can go out and be your own defense and speak in your own defense but the Lord if He is your Lord will break through and will defend you every time. David poetically confirms this truth. Psalm 18, verse 1, he says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. You hear all that? Rock, fortress, deliverer, strength, refuge, all of that. David says, that's who God is. And He's my shield. And he's the horn of my salvation. And he is my stronghold. God is the master of the breakthrough. Let him be your defender. And stop wasting your time and your energy defending yourself.